This is InfoTrack, the weekly show with information you should know. Here's what's happening on this week's show. Millions of Americans are addicted to opioids, such as heroin and oxycodone. A psychiatrist says part of the battle is in the way we look at addiction. A popular way of talking about addiction is that it's a brain disease. That's true, but I don't like to limit it to that because the human dimension is so great. If I have to call it any one thing, I call it a behavioral condition. Then, a research study shows a significant link between dementia and a common everyday substance. We think that somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of dementia could be ascribed to the effects of exposure to it. So it looks as if it's a real phenomenon. Scary conclusion. Those two stories and much more are straight ahead on this week's show. InfoTrack begins right after this timeout. InfoTrack, the weekly show with information you should know. Here's your host, Chris Whitting. It's estimated that over 2 million Americans are addicted to opioids, drugs that include heroin, fentanyl, and oxycodone. What can be done to deal with this situation? Here to discuss this is Sally Sattel, a psychiatrist and resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Dr. Sattel, welcome to InfoTrack. Thanks for having me. Those addicted to opioids are in the grip of one of these very powerful drugs. What options are there today for breaking an addiction like this? Well, there are lots of approaches. As you know, in general, drug policy tends to gravitate around two general approaches, and one has been traditionally called supply reduction, and the other is called demand reduction. So supply reduction is basically trying to make the drugs less available, and that can involve interdiction if we're talking about trafficking and heroin or other drugs that are brought in from overseas, or in this case, Mexico, and also law enforcement. And in the case of our current opioid crisis, since it largely began with prescription medications, within the last several years, doctors have become much more sensitized to proper prescribing and also enlightened methods of treating chronic pain where we've been too ready to go to opioids as the first choice for treating long-term pain. Certainly, it's something you might want to use if someone has broken a leg. There's no question about that. And there's a place for these drugs, no question. But there are other non-addicting medications to use and other kinds of strategies that can bring significant relief. And many of the illicit sources of these drugs have been shut down. Yes. Law enforcement has suppressed pill mills in most states. These were basically places where people could come in and buy drugs. They would nominally say they had pain, but everyone knew they largely didn't, and it was often run by a shady kind of physician. So that supplied a lot of OxyContin, and that's been shut down. And also pharmacists and doctors now are much more cautious about following with registries the prescriptions that they have written, and that cuts down to some degree on doctor shopping. So those are all just examples of the kind of supply reduction, trying to keep the amount of prescription drugs in circulation much, much lower. What can you do about addiction itself? That gets us into the realm of what would be called demand reduction, which is essentially to suppress the desire to use these drugs, whether they're prescription drugs that are abused 
And now, increasingly, since around 2009-2010, heroin, and now with the availability of fentanyl, which is a very, very powerful opioid, we've gotten many overdoses from this as well. You have treated heroin addicts in your practice, correct? Yeah, I work in a methadone clinic. And, you know, a lot of times people hear the word methadone and, you know, which has been around since the 60s, and it's an excellent standby treatment. It's called a substitution therapy. Methadone itself is an opioid, but is addicting if you take it long term. And you will experience withdrawal if you discontinue it abruptly. But when you're already addicted to an opioid, the idea is to replace it with a controlled medication, and methadone is certainly a medication, that you take once a day, you know it's purity, and you take it in doses that are enough to suppress withdrawal, but not enough to suppress any kind of functioning. So our patients, many of them come in at six in the morning, drink it, and then go to work. And frankly, when you do well in the clinic, which is a pretty tightly supervised clinic, and the DEA is very concerned about methadone diversion, you do well in the clinic, and you can progress to the point where you take home a 30-day supply, which is frankly no different than going to a doctor and getting a month's worth of prescriptions. Their lives are in such chaos that this provides some element of structure. They see counselors. We do take urine tests, but it's not to punish people with the results. It's to realize that you know they need more intervention. But methadone is a good medication, and it's certainly still used. There's another much more popular medication now that I'm sure you've heard of called buprenorphine or suboxone, which is also a replacement medication. But unlike methadone, it's less dangerous if one were to overdose on it. And you can get that from a doctor. You don't have to go to a special methadone clinic. Any doctor is technically able to prescribe it as long as he or she has taken an eight-hour course and gotten a what's called a waiver from the federal government. We're talking on InfoTrack with Sally Sattel, a psychiatrist and resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Do you consider addiction a medical problem, a psychological problem, a social problem, or is it all of those? My answer was going to be yes. <laughs> it's all. It's all those problems. A popular way of talking about addiction is that it's a brain disease. I personally don't favor that because I think that's just one part of it. Of course, drugs affect the brain and the circuitry of our brains. Why else would we take them? So there's no question about that. But regular excessive use of a drug will affect the brain in some ways. Typically, it's reversible over time. That's true. But I don't like to limit it to that because the human dimension is so great. So I do, if I have to call it any one thing, I call it a behavioral condition because just giving people these medications, which again is the kind of thing you tend to think of when you think disease, there must be a medication. So yes, these medications help, but what they help do is suppress withdrawal. And to some extent, they suppress craving, and that's very helpful to stabilize someone. But then there are a whole other host of issues to take care of, which is sometimes a criminal record, sometimes a woman's children have been taken away, job problems, family problems. And then the ultimate consideration, which is why people turn to these drugs in the first place. And I'm a great believer, and this is not theoretical, this is from my clinical work, and frankly, in the short term, drugs served a purpose for them. It can help with anxiety, depression, boredom, a kind of emptiness, despair. I mean, these are existential things. 
some people in society tend to look down on drug addicts as the lower class, but these types of addictions can affect people in all classes of society, right? They can affect everyone. All we have to do is look to Hollywood. I mean, you see people who would appear to have absolutely everything, but they have their own set of miseries, and that's the human condition. So no one's exempt in that sense. And I understand why there's a push to medicalize addiction to the extent that I observe it, because people think if you don't call it a brain disease, if you don't think of it in disease terms, then we're going to go to the other pole, which is to approach it as a criminal problem and incarcerate people. And see, I don't think those two poles have to be our choice, however. I mean, there's a very big middle ground where we can recognize that people can make decisions. They made a decision to come into treatment, for heaven's sakes. Now, they're often ambivalent about quitting because for so long, these drugs, as I say, have helped them in the short term. Clearly, they've accrued so many other life problems as a result, which makes people even more despairing, which kind of increases the drive to use more. We can recognize that people do make some choices, even while they're addicted, because people decide whether they're going to quit that day, and many people quit on their own. We don't hear about that very much, because so many people who become the research subjects in studies are people who are already in treatment, and of course, the people who cause society the most, the ones who do get arrested from using drugs, the ones who do use are heavy users of emergency rooms and treatment, are the people with the more severe problems. But the average person with a drug problem actually pulls himself or herself back. And there's a big middle ground for treating them humanely with the, some of these medications that I mentioned. There are even other medications that are blockers. In other words, you get an injection of a drug called Vivitrol. And if you use drugs on top of it, you won't get any effect. If someone listening or a loved one is dealing with an addiction, what would you suggest? I would just type in literally addiction help, but it's interesting you mentioned that because I was just talking to people in Kentucky and that state, I'm sure it's not the only one, but they are an example of a very progressive state as far as the problem goes. They have a website and people can be referred to all kinds of treatment options from there. There's not just one, not everyone has to go inpatient, can deal with a lot of problems on an outpatient basis. But there still is a bed shortage or a treatment slot shortage. That is a big, big problem. And that's, frankly, probably what the feds can do best is provide money for treatment. Sally Sattel, a psychiatrist and resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Dr. Sattel, that was a lot of great information. We appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Next, a common substance may trigger dementia. The eye-opening story, coming up. Stick around, there's more InfoTrack straight ahead. <laughs> <laughs> 